Father, we just love it when you break in on us. We love it when you come and just your agenda shines through. And Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. And Father, I ask right now that you'll just stir something in our hearts. Father, as I speak, Lord, it it won't be my words, but God, your spirit will connect with each of our spirits this morning. We just invite you, uh, come and do what you want to do in us this morning. Thank you, God. Amen. Brilliant. So, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I don't stand up here and speak very often, so uh, I thought I'd just give you a two-second summary of who I am and kind of how I fit into this Hope family. So, my name's Mark Spicer, and I'm married to Lydia, who's just arrived at the front here. I've been married for 31 years. We've got four kids who are allegedly, allegedly all adults. Um, LAUGHTER and I guess we've been part of Hope Church for about 10 years, and Lydia and I are part of the sort of wider leadership team in the church here. Um, I'm involved with our Supernatural School on the team that runs that, and I'm also, uh, for a long time, led the worship team here, and that's recently been handed over to the wonderful Steve, who led us so well in worship this morning as well. Yeah, give him a round of applause. And... I'm so blessed to be part of this church because worship is so much at a core of what we do. And I think many churches have got so caught up with agendas that perhaps worship has taken a back seat or it's become functional. And as I talk today, hopefully you'll catch some of our heart as to why um, worship is so key to us. So this is kind of part of a, should we say, a mini-series on worship. So I spoke about six or eight weeks ago. I just wanted to quickly summarize what I covered last time because that will act as a kind of a springboard for um, what we're going to go into today. So as I say, previously at Hope Church. (laughs) So we kind of covered three topics. We, We started off right at the bottom. So why do we worship? And we discovered that actually it's what we're made for. It's what God created us for. It's our highest calling. And Jesus instructed us in the Lord's Prayer when we pray. The first thing we do is acknowledge our Father. And our response to him is, hallowed be your name. So our first response and our first place when we come to God is to worship. And we also discovered that worship's an experiential activity. It's not just something that's in the mind, but God involves all of our being in worship. I also talked a bit about personal intimacy And again, God wants to have relationship with us. So in the beginning, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. They sinned and fell and kind of that that relationship was broken. But that's been restored to us um, through Jesus. And so we have um, a way for us to have intimacy with him once more. And we're called to a life of worship. And... There were five things that I pulled out about true worship. That it's born out of our relationship with God, so it's a response to him. It's intentional. It's not something that just happens, but it's something that we choose to do. Sometimes it's costly, whether it be with our money or whether it be with our time or our resources. Um, It's a faith activity, partly because it is costly. So if you're faced with a situation, to worship in the the face of that takes faith. And we need faith to please God. And it also finally elicits a response from our Father. So as we worship, God responds to us. It's not a one-way channel. 
And then I talked a little bit about corporate worship, and we saw that it's God's intention for his people to worship. Right at the beginning of time, in creation, it says the morning stars sang together. I think that's probably the angelic host, and they just saw God's creation and were stirred with wonder and kind of burst out in, in worship together. When God calls the Israelites out of Egypt, what he specifically called them out into the desert to do was to worship him. Uh, and that's actually what he told Moses, I'm call, calling that out into the desert to worship me. We see throughout the Old Testament, again, Israel gathering to worship at the temple. And so again, this corporate sense, and we're going to look at that in a bit more detail this morning. And then in the early church, we see the that they were gathered in the temple courts, they gathered house to house, and worship was an integral part of that. And then we come full circle and we look into Revelation and we see this picture of heaven at the end times and the elders leading the, the angels and the saints in worship before the throne. And so um, I, I guess you know, it, it is what we're made for and there's something important about our corporate worship together as well. And so we finished with the thought that it's all about his presence. And that's what I really want to use as our springboard for our kind of exploration of what God wants to say to us today. And so it's kind of a bit arbitrary, but we consider, can think of different ways in which God is present. And I kind of spoke about this a little bit last time, and I'm just going to remind you because we're going to kind of go from here. So first of all, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Um, it talks about him being before all things and in all things and in him all things hold together in uh, Colossians 1 verse 17. And it talks about him sustaining things by his powerful word. So he's influencing throughout the universe. We've had the verse read this morning as we we're praying over Harry and Sarah. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. So God's everywhere. He's around us. We can't escape him. But secondly, he then, when we put our, put our trust in him, he indwells us. So it says in Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And then in uh, Colossians 1.27, it says, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in 2 Corinthians 6.13, it talks about us being a temple of the living God. So God actually comes and indwells uh, us. And then when we meet together as believers, there's kind of a further measure of his presence. In Matthew 18, 20, it, Jesus said to the disciples, where two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst. So when we come together in Jesus' name, he's here and he's present with us. We sang that song, when, when you walk into the room, everything changes and that just gets me every time. <laughs> um, but yeah, Jesus is here when we, when we praise together. Yes. And when we praise, God is present. Psalm 22 it talks about God being enthroned in the praises of his people. Yes. And then finally, there's that kind of 
intense measure of manifest presence which marks uh, or has marked in the past special moments and I believe is going to be something which is, becomes our norm, normal. I believe that God, as we gather with one heart, actually wants to break in on us. He wants to break in in a tangible way. He wants us to experience him and his goodness. And so that's really what I want to talk about much more today. I got saved in the late 70s. Do the maths, it's a long time ago. Um, But ever since then, I've just been really gripped by the stories that you see through the Bible of God's presence coming in tangible ways. And I guess I've been on a journey for that, however many years that is. Um, I'm going to not do the maths. I probably don't want to know. Um, But to understand what it is that provokes God to respond in that way to us. Um, how we can create a place and a space where God is happy to dwell. So we can learn from these stories, many of them in the Old Testament, some in the New. And so I want to jump in and have a wee look uh, at just one of those stories to begin with. And that's in the early chapters of of, uh, 2 Chronicles. And these chapters tell the story of Solomon, um, who was King David's son, And he was the one who actually built a temple, uh, a permanent temple in Israel, which was to be the place where God would come and dwell among his people. So the early chapters, chapter 2 and 3, chapter 2 tells us about uh, Solomon kind of being established as the king over Israel, succeeding David. And although David was described as a man after God's heart, he wasn't actually permitted to build the temple because he'd been a man of war, and God just, I guess, didn't permit him to build the temple. And then as you go through the, cha- the first two or three chapters, tell us about the preparations for building the temple. So David had actually done a whole, ba- bun- a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, he'd uh, gathered a whole bunch of gold and precious, precious stones and all kinds of stuff into a big storehouse ready for this building project. And it tells us then about how Solomon sourced the wood and other materials, how he pulled together this team of amazing craftsmen and builders who were then enlisted to build this amazing structure. And then it talks about building the temple and fitting it out with all the utensils and so on. It was an amazing effort and at a great cost. And so that takes us into the beginning of chapter 5. And I'm going to read you a good chunk and I just want you to try and kind of get, get this into your head and into your heart of, of, of what's going on here. So when all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and all the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of God's temple. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, And all the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. And all the Israelites came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark. So this was uh, the ark that Moses had built back in the desert and will maybe go back to Moses in a little while. And they brought this ark to the tent and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it, and the Levitical priests carried them up, 
And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle they could not be recorded or counted. Thank God for the new covenant. (laughs) The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. And these cherubim were... um, kind of within the holy place there were images of angelic beings the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and covered the ark and its carrying poles and these poles were so long that their ends extending from the ark could be seen from in front of the inner sanctuary but not from outside the holy place and they're still there today there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt so they've got the ark into the, into the uh, holy place. And the, police, the priests then withdrew from the holy pr- place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jejuthun and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. That sounds like my kind of band. I love a good brass section. (laughs) The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals and other instruments. The singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He's good, his love endures forever. And then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then there's there's some prayers and various bits and pieces. And jumping down to the end of chapter 6, verse 40, Solomon then prayed, Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. And when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Whoa. <laughs> The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good, his love endures forever. And then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. (laughs) Just amazing. I'd love to be a fly on the wall on that day. (laughs) Just that sense of God's presence coming and falling in the temple. And just the great sense of occasion as well. All these hundreds of musicians and uh, all the elders gathered together. Uh, It must have been just an amazing thing. So what can we learn from this story? I think the first thing is to honour God with everything that you have. The kind of backstory to this was that actually the people of Israel and the king all together gave extravagantly and sacrificially into the fund to rebuild God's house. 
and how we handle these practical things actually say a great thing, uh, a great deal about us and who we are and where we are with God. Our money, our time, our relationships, how we invest those um, is really, really important. And here the, the people of Israel had pulled together, they'd given sacrificially because they believed it was important um, for God to be honoured above everything else, for his house to be established at the centre of Israel, a place of presence and a, a place of blessing in the nation. So how we handle our, uh, all the aspects of our life, really, and how we put God first in those is really key. In Matthew 6, it says, where your treasure is, there your heart is, will be also. Um, so how do we hold those things before Father? It's interesting that Andy's been speaking to us about giving and money and various things in recent weeks. And the heart in this church isn't give us your money, but our heart is that each one of us is in that place before God where we hold everything lightly, that we're given to him. And as we take up our offerings, we say this is a continuation of our worship. And this needs to become our reality, that actually part of our worship to him is our giving, as I say, both of our money, of our time, of our talents, and so on. In Romans 12, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. God wants us all, and he deserves us all as well. So the New Testament view is that we give God everything and we become a living sacrifice to him, which is pleasing to God. So that's the first thing. They, in coming to this moment, they honoured God with everything they, that they had. I think the second thing is to make his presence the central thing. So the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant and they set it in the inner sanctuary into the holy place. And the ark was built by Moses in the desert with the people of Israel. And it spoke of God's presence. So God's presence would come and reside. There were these cherubim on the side of the ark. And between their wings, God will come and make himself present and speak to the nation from there. So the ark was this symbol of God being present among his people. And when they built this fixed temple, they had been in tents for many years, When they built this fixed temple, it says everything that they brought the ark to sit in the center of this temple because they wanted God's presence to be at the center of their nation and to direct them and to um, show them where to go. And the ark brought blessing wherever it went as well. I mean, we we see in, in David's time, even when it was out among heathen people, it brought blessing to them because where God's presence is, there's blessing. And it's not surprising where God's presence. In Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, In your presence, there's fullness of joy and blessing forevermore. I like that. So we need to live out of that presence. Um, In Colossians 3, it tells us to set your eyes on things above. Um, And we we need to um, be making presence central in our lives as well. The third thing was that Covenant is also a key ingredient. In the middle of this ark of the covenant, 
there was, the two stone tablets that Moses brought down from the, motion, uh, from the mountain when God spoke to him and to the nation and made covenant with them. Yeah. And so in the center of this box, which spoke of presence, there was also these tablets which reminded them of God's presence. And originally in the, um, the ark was a, 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 a rod. It was Aaron's rod which had thrown down and had actually, and actually been put in the ground and actually budded um, as a sign that he was God's chosen man. And so again, there's something of the, the kind of supernatural um, anointing of God in there as well. But we need to understand the covenant that we're living under in order to live in the goodness of it. And understanding this covenant is so key to us understanding who God is about and also um, in our worship in terms of coming into his presence. I don't have time to expend hugely on this, but Hebrews is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and it kind of does this compare and contrast of the old and new covenant. So in Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 25, it says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice, that's Jesus for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I'll make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been given, forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, Open for us through the curtain. That's his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Whoa. What a stunning contrast. We saw at the the temple sacrificing, it was literally thousands of animals. These constant blood sacrifices, and yet we have the one sacrifice of Jesus, once and for all. And our covenantal right is free access to the throne of grace. We have free access into the presence of God. That just blows me away. (laughs) Oh, Let me just read that verse to you again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. 
And I think Andy's talked about this quite a lot, about um, us actually learning and beginning to have embedded in, in our hearts who we actually are before the Father. And knowing again who the Father is, that he's a good Father, that actually it's not a scary thing to come into God's presence, but it's, it's a, an amazing thing. So let's learn to live in the good of that. Okay, the fourth thing that I take out of that story is that unity provokes God's blessing. All of Israel was gathered at the temple with one purpose. All the elders, everybody was there with one heart to see this temple established, to see God's presence established in the nation. And then the worship band, they struck up in unison, all the voices and everything. Bang, God's presence was there. And... Unity is incredibly important. Psalm 33, we know it very well, says how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. And it gives various kind of pictures of that. And at the end, he then says, for there the Lord bestows the blessing, even life forevermore. So there's life in unity. And it's a journey that we're exploring as a family, isn't it? We're learning to live together with all our differences and warts and all and it's, it's challenging sometimes and some of what Danny's going to come and share with us when he's here in, in the middle of October is going to help us on that journey as well. It's real, it's messy sometimes but God wants to knit us together in unity and as we learn to live freely in brotherly love, cheering each other on, not having to compete because we're secure in who we are and who God's called us to be then true unity breaks out among us. And God won't withhold his blessing. And then the fifth thing is that worship brings God's presence. I think we've seen that already this morning, how just as we come and worship, God comes and he's here among us and begins to touch on the things in our lives. But yeah, we see here in the story that when the worship band strikes up, the people sing together about his love. God's presence breaks out in the temple sanctuary. And worship is the primary activity of heaven. When we get the glimpses into heaven, you know, in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has this vision of heaven and the angels, they're worshiping God. And in Revelation, where we see pictures of heaven, um, worship is just what's happening all the time in heaven. God's there, how can we not worship him? But if we want to bring heaven's atmosphere to earth, then we need to do what's happening in heaven. and We need to worship. So as we worship, we bring something of heaven. And I spoke last time just a little bit, and Andy's spoken as well about the church, the house of God being the gateway of heaven. And it's in that place of worship that... heaven's atmosphere is released. I think too often we end up being defined by what we do. And certainly it's become a a well-worn phrase that he's so heavenly minded he's no earthly good. And that's kind of become part of Western church culture, I think. I love what C.S. Lewis has to say about this. He says, in my opinion, it's because we so seldom think of the other world that we're so ineffective in our own. 
And I truly believe that our ability to connect with and to bless this world is directly proportional to our connection with the heavenly realm. And that, that happens when we worship. That's our primary connection with the heavenly, heavenly realm. Our spirits are connected with the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, heaven invades our hearts. And when that happens, heaven invades earth around us as well. And then the sixth thing that I took out of this passage was that presence actually turns us to worship. So we've got this kind of virtuous circle, really. We praise, God turns up, God turns up, we praise some more, which is kind of cool. (laughs) So it's what happens here. God shows up in the temple. All the people are blown away and they bow down and they worship in 2 Chronicles 7. And... I love that. I mean, I don't think the people were expecting this response from God. They were wanting this temple to be amazing. They wanted their nation to be amazing. But God saw something in their hearts and in their preparations for this. And God showed up and manifested himself. And their response, I'm so glad, was, wow, God, you're amazing. Um, I, I had the privilege of being in Bethel Church in California two or three years ago for their worship school and on a couple of occasions when we were there this kind of what they call the glory cloud appeared in, in, this, in the sanctuary as we were worshipping and just this kind of gold glittering cloud up in the, in the top of the, the room and what I loved about that, it was an amazing experience but what I loved about it was each time that this cloud appeared it wasn't all about, this is a glory cloud, but God, you're amazing. And it turned to this unbelievable worship. On one, one night, just 45 minutes of a cappella worship, the worship band were flat out, and God's presence was there. I, I, I think I've never experienced anything like it before or after, but I will. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and just a story from here the other week, the, in Lamb, the Love After Marriage Conference, God just showing up and jewels and all kinds of stuff appearing. We don't understand it, but it's God showing his heart towards us and we need to turn our hearts to him when he breaks out like that and and worship. Okay. I'm just going to finish now. I want to quickly look at a couple of instants from the life of Moses because Moses was, again, a man of presence. So going into Exodus 33, I'm going to read you a wee bit. Um, Let's see. We'll start at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I'll give it to your descendants. I'll send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, and the various other ites. Go up to the land flowing with milk, milk and honey, (laughs) but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way God's a bit ticked off with these guys I think they moaned they complained they done all kinds of stuff they built false idols and worshipped false gods and when the people heard these words they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments and so on 
And verse 7, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go up to the tent and meet outside the camp, tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. So again, presence engenders worship. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as as one speaks to a friend. And Moses would then return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not... You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Just putting it out there, God. (laughs) The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you've asked me because I'm pleased with you. And then towards the end of chapter 34, Moses has been up on the mountain, he's been... Uh, receiving the tablets of the covenant. Uh, God's been kind of uh, re-engraved re, uh, so that because of the ones he'd broken when he came come down and was a bit ticked off with the Israelites for um, golden calves and all the rest of it. So Moses is coming back down the mountain with the two tablets of the law in his hands. And he was not aware that his face was radiant because he'd spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near to him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and the leaders of the community came back and he spoke to them. And then he covered his face with a veil because it was just glowing with presence. So just a couple of things out of this story quickly. First of all, presence is what sets us apart. One of the key reasons that as a church we pursue God's presence is that without his presence, we're just like anybody else on the planet. You know, we can be good, we can be benevolent and altruistic, we can feed the hungry and house the homeless. But actually, when it comes down to it, the many who aren't Christians who are doing those things. What sets us apart is the presence of God that's among us as a people and who is within us as individuals. Because... Presence actually enables us to tap into heaven's resources and release God's supernatural answers to these people. We can release healing, deliverance, comfort, and an encounter with God's love and God's presence. So for us, encountering God's presence in the place of worship ultimately actually enables us to release God's kingdom into the world. And the second thing is that presence changes us. Um, Moses came down from the mountain, he'd encountered God, his face was glowing, and in the same way as we encounter God, we reflect his glory. 
And the atmosphere we release is determined by the atmosphere that we live in. So if we're bathed in presence, we're going to release heaven's atmosphere around us. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, We are the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.16 it says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. And there have been many voices in the church in recent years who've kind of put down modern worship as kind of self-indulgent and wasteful. And I want to counter that argument. Worship is our lifeblood. It's the place where we encounter God face to face. And as we encounter him face to face, then we're transformed into his image, into his likeliness. And our effectiveness in touching the world with his kingdom will be boosted by being in his presence. In my opinion, it's time well spent. (laughs) There are many other things that God's presence does, and I'm just going to list one or two. Um, It's a place of commissioning. Think about Moses with his burning bush. God breaks in and speaks to him and tells him who he is and what God has for him. It's a place of breakthrough from release and and release from captivity. And we've seen a bit of that in our worship the last couple of weeks. Think of Paul and Silas in a prison, being beaten, middle of the night, and they're praising God at the top of their voices. And God breaks in, opens the prison door, and people get saved and all sorts. Brilliant. And presence is also a sign of God's pleasure. Um, he comes and he dwells where he's going to feel at home. We, I think it was Julian Adams uh, spoke to us here about it's a time of habitation, not just visitation. God's coming to dwell among his church. And so, yes, it's a, it's a sign of God's pleasure. Jesus' baptism, for instance, the dove appears and God speaks from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And to finish, I just want to come back to the idea that each one of us is a temple of his Holy Spirit. He wants to indwell us. And the degree to which he can do that is limited to the, by the degree of access that we give him. And I want to encourage you just to make space in your life for the Holy Spirit. Ooh. <clears throat> Welcome him in. And if your appetite's whetted by what I've been talking about, I want to recommend a book to you as well. Bill Johnson's book called Hosting His Presence is just a brilliant um, exposition of this whole um, area of just allowing God in and allowing him free reign in our lives. It's been a real help and an inspiration to me as I've kind of pressed in further over these last few years. I just want to say as well that experience his presence is actually our right as a believer. And I want to invite you to join me on this journey of going deeper into all that the Father has for us. I want us actually just to close by worshipping Steve, are you around in the band? I just want us to invite the Holy Spirit to come again. If you've become cold or lost your hunger, or if God seems distant, ask him to come as we sing together. It says in uh, 
Peter, I think it is, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Let's just choose to turn our affections towards him. If you've never met with God, this is all completely new and crazy to you. As we stand and sing, why don't you just take a chance and ask him just to reveal himself to you? And if you're already there, there's always more. (laughs) So let's stand together, let's, let's sing together. Yeah, Holy Spirit, we invite you. We invite you first and foremost into our lives. Holy Spirit, come flood us again. Renew us, flow out of us. We invite you, make your habitation with us. And Holy Spirit, as a body, as a a company of your people, we just ask that your presence would characterize us. That it would be what sets us apart from all the other people in the world. Uh, God, we prize and we treasure when you show up among us. And we want to be a people of one heart and of one mind who host your presence well. God, we invite you, come t- journey with us as we go up and as we step into so many areas. God, that your presence would be upon us, leaking out of us. Ah. (laughs) We love you, God. We love you, God. (laughs) Thank you, God. Amen.